The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. Good morning. If you have your copy of scripture there, go ahead and turn to John chapter 1. We've been working our way through John uh, very slowly here, the first chapter, because we want to lay a very strong foundation of how we understand the rest of the gospel. It's not just a collective uh, group of stories that are like, wow, look what Jesus can do. John is making a theological argument, and he's laying out the argument here, and everything that he gives you beyond that is the validation of what he says here. And it's also when you get to those stories a little later on and you're like, well, how do we know Jesus can really do this? It's like it's pointing back to chapter one, the prologue, what we have here, the introduction and going because he's the word, because he was before creation, because everything that was created was created through him. That's how he has power over the sea. That's how he has power over the wind. That's how he has power to forgive sins. He's God. And so everything here is very important for us to stop and slowly work through methodically because it's laying a foundation of how we're going to understand everything else that he says throughout the rest of the gospel. So we come to the end of what is traditionally called the prologue or the introduction, if you will, to the gospel of John, which runs uh, through verse 18. So last week, we spent some time focusing on just verse 14, which talks about the fact that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And after verse 14, John never uses the term word to refer to Jesus again. So this is the end of it. From this point forward, we see what that word does, how the word lives, how the word reflects the father in everything that he does. But it's very important up to this point because remember, this is the introduction. This is the foundation of how we understand everything Jesus is doing from this point forward. And so last week we spent some time methodically working through verse 14. However, we don't want to divorce verse 14 from the rest of these verses that follow it because it's crucial to understand this line of thought. So jumping into that, we're gonna look at verse 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18 but we're gonna focus on really the last part of that, those last three verses, uh, as far as the, the, what we're gonna kind of zero in on this morning. So the last paragraph of this introduction, uh, the last paragraph of this prologue actually points us back to the first. So John is revisiting here at the end of this introduction, what he gave to us there at the beginning of that introduction. He returns to the themes that he gave to us in that opening paragraph when it speaks of the word being at the Father's side and making him known here at the end. It, it reminds us of what he said in the beginning that the word was with God, the word was God, the word was in the beginning, the word created everything that is, okay? So with that in mind, let's read um, verse 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have, what is the word there? Seen, okay, so remember that. We have seen his glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all, what's the word there? Do you see how this is growing? So it's something that we've seen, now it's something we have received. And what is it? 
grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So, like we were talking about earlier, uh, during our singing and proclaiming through worship these truths, uh, we referred to this passage in Exodus chapter 33, roughly 34 as well. And there are these striking parallels between what John says here and what happens in Exodus 33 and 34. So striking that I just want to show you how there are these parallels that exist there. In Exodus 33 and 34, specifically 33 verse 14, Israel found grace in the sight of God. Verse 16 of John says the disciples received grace in the place of grace or grace upon grace. In Exodus 33, 20, no one can see God's face and live. John reminds us in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. In chapter 33, verse 23, God's glory passes by Moses. In verse 14 of, God, of John's gospel, the disciples beheld the glory of the word that had become flesh and dwelt among them. In chapter 34 of Exodus, God abounds in loving kindness, has said, and truth. And then chapter 1, verse 14 and verse 17 of John, Jesus is full of grace and truth. In chapter 33, verse 7, God dwelt in a tent. Chapter 1, verse 14, the word tented or tabernacle dwelt among the disciples. In chapter 34, Moses was given the law. And then in chapter 1, verse 17 of John, the law was given through Moses. 34, verse 32, Moses was the mediator between God and Israel. He stood on their behalf and went to the Lord on their behalf. In verse 17 and 18 of chapter 1, Jesus is the mediator between God and man. So do you see how John is not just randomly throwing these things out there? He's not just poetically putting these things together. He is being very intentional in the way he creates this introduction, and he is paralleling what's already happened in Exodus chapter 33, verse 34 that we've talked about. It was this experience that Moses had even that we were talking about just a moment ago where he says, I want to see your face, and he says, you can't see my face and live. But I tell you what I'll do. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll hide you and I'll walk past you. And this is this overwhelming experience. And I actually read one commentator who said that the word back is not the best translation of the word, although it fits, but it's a very difficult Hebrew word that if you translate it literally means I will let you see where I just was. And so he didn't see anything of God. He hid him. He walked past. And after he had passed by where Moses was, he removes his hand or uncovers that place. And Moses sees where God just was, but isn't anymore. That's, that's where we get the idea of the back. It's, it's, it's after God has passed. And think about this. If we understand that correctly... Moses says, God, I want to see your face. He says, you can't see my face or you'll die. But I tell you what, Moses, I'll hide you, walk past. I won't be there anymore, but I'll let you see where I just was. And that'll be enough to blow your mind. And it was. 
I mean, you think about what happened, the havoc, the glory that just existed, and God's not even there anymore. That's just where he was. And Moses falls down and worships. It reminds me of what happens with Isaiah, right? He has this vision of the Lord that's high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, it tells us in chapter 6 of Isaiah. And what does Isaiah do? Does he start clapping? Does he break into a worship song? No. He, he falls down and hides himself, and he thinks, Surely this is the day that I'm going to die because I've seen God now and I've seen how glorious and how righteous and how majestic he is and I've seen how ugly and dirty I am and how fall, how short I fall of his great glory. And not only am I unclean, I'm a generation of a whole group of people that are completely unclean. Woe is me, I am undone. So whenever we see God, there is this repeated experience that when we fully understand the glory and majesty of God, there's just one response that we find over and over again. We bow down, we hide ourselves, we worship. And I think this is important for us to understand because when we understand God in his right place, we begin to understand the character of God better. It also really filters out into all of our theology. There is this limitless nature to God's character. We call it infinite. And God is infinite in every aspect of his being. And the reason that's important, because John alludes to it here, this fullness that we experience, the reason it's important is because when we understand the fullness, the, the limitless, the the overwhelming, eternal nature of God, it really begins to change the way we understand grace, God's riches, His righteousness. It changes the way heaven looks to us. Let me think about this for a moment. When we try to envision heaven, it's a very difficult thing for us to understand. So we gravitate very concretely to what scripture says. And it says, the streets are gold, the gates are pearls, the sea is glass. And so we take that concretely and say, that's what it's gonna be like. We're gonna walk through these pearly gates. There's gonna be, and I'm not saying that it doesn't exist, but what I am saying is those are just pictures to help us understand that heaven is so far beyond anything that we can imagine that whatever that place is like, the thing that we value most here, like gold, is pavement there. Things that we treasure and hide away in safes is just building material in heaven. It's so far beyond what we can understand. Because people, when we think about heaven, we think about being in the presence of God, and we think about being there eternally, what happens is we start struggling with this whole concept of heaven, and we start trying to figure out, well, what are we going to do there? And so there's these images of, you know, harps and little puffy clouds that we sit on and we're gonna play this music and we're gonna worship God. But then we think, well, I mean, how long before we get bored with that? You're not gonna get bored with it. Well, I understand that. I'm not gonna get bored because God is God. But we really struggle to think, am I just gonna play this harp forever? Am I gonna keep singing these songs? Here's the thing that you don't understand is that when you take what happens with Isaiah, 
and him falling before the Lord because he's overwhelmed with the awe and majesty of God. When you take what Moses said, hey, I want to see your face. You can't handle my face, but I'll pass by and I'll let you see where I just was, but I'm not there anymore and that will blow your mind. That gives us an indication of when we get to heaven and we understand this infinite nature of all of God's character. When you see the majesty and the grace of God in heaven, you know what's going to happen? You're never going to be able to turn your face away. Because like Isaiah says, and even Revelation paints this picture, that there are these angels that fly around the throne of heaven. And, and, and Isaiah says that they had six wings, and with two they covered their eyes, and two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And they went around the throne singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Revelation says that there are these beings that circle the throne of God, and they constantly praise him and are awed by him. So think about this for a moment. Angels who have never had to understand or experience the mercy of God because they've never sinned. They've never been on the other side of God's redemptive plan. They've been in his presence forever from the beginning. And yet they, when they look upon the throne of God, can't look without covering their eyes. And they constantly find themselves repeating themselves over and over again, like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they just keep repeating themselves. Why? Because there's something about the presence of God and the character of God that we never are able to get over. And so whenever you walk into heaven and you see God there, you might be there for a thousand years, 10,000 years, and you know what you're gonna do? You're gonna keep like, I can't, I can't stop looking at this. I'm so in awe and mesmerized by this. You know why I can safely say that? Is because God is infinite in every aspect of his character. So you think about what Moses saw and what Isaiah saw and what these angels see. There is this unfolding character of God that never ends. If he's infinite in his glory, if he's infinite in his righteousness, if he's infinite in his grace, then there are all these expressions of his character that for eternity, you are constantly experiencing something new because there's never an end to the character of God. He's infinite. And so it's not a matter of you're going to do like, oh, what am I going to do with myself? I've been here for 10,000 years. 10,000 years is going to pass by like that without you ever looking away. You are going to be in awe and you are going to be blown away by the character and revelation of God that just keeps unfolding because it's infinite. Not only that, there's this beautiful picture of what is ours in Christ Jesus because in Ephesians chapter one, it tells us that God gives to us in accordance to his riches and glory, okay? Now, I love the word in accordance to because that, doesn't, that, that means that God doesn't give to us out of his riches and glory. He gives to us according to his riches and glory. So that speaks of percentages, so in other words, if I'm a super wealthy man and I give you $10, I give you $10 out of my riches. I'm not giving you $10 according to how wealthy I am. If I give to you in accordance with how wealthy I am, you're gonna get a whole lot more than $10 because it's according to how wealthy I am. Now think about this for a moment. When, when Paul tells us in Ephesians that we 
receive this inheritance and, and, and we receive what is ours in Christ Jesus in accordance to his riches and glory, then all of a sudden when we understand the infinite nature of God, that means that <clears throat> if every single one of us gets only a point zero 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 one of what God has, guess what you still have? Infinite. Because any percentage of infinite is infinite. And so that is a declaration that Paul is making that's in accordance with the riches of God and that's what's ours in Christ Jesus. Now that's something that when you begin to embrace that truth, it will, it will blow your mind. It will absolutely leave you stunned and in awe of who God is. A whole picture that John is creating. Look again at how he starts off. Of course, we know the passage of verse 14 where the word has become flesh and dwelt among us. Now, all of a sudden, 15 looks like it's out of place, doesn't it? I mean, it's even got parentheses around it like, oops, I just want to make sure I put this in here before I move on. And it says, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So we're going to hold off and going into a lot of detail with this because the next section that we're going into is all about John the Baptist, and that's who he's referring to here. And he's already alluded to John earlier, and we talked about John the Baptist being that last prophet, the forerunner of Christ. He's the picture of Elijah uh, there who is preparing the way for the Lord. Uh, so again, John comes back, John the gospel writer comes back and mentions John the Baptist here. Now that seems like it's very odd, but what John is emphasizing, John the gospel writer, is that even John the Baptist realized the preeminence of Christ. In other words, even though John's ministry predates Jesus's ministry, John's been proclaiming in the wilderness for a long time before Jesus ever calls one disciple, before he ever gets baptized, before they ever hear that voice from heaven. But John even realizes that, hey, this one is the one I was telling you about. He's the one that actually is before me. He's before everything. I'm not even unworthy. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. Matter of fact, John makes the proclamation later. I have to become less, he has to become more because this is about him, this isn't about me. I'm just a small figure in this whole story that centers on this person of Jesus Christ. So as we come to the end of this introduction to the Gospel of John, it would be good for us to back up and see this whole picture. Now, if you look at the whole introduction, what you find is a chiasm, right? We, 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 we hear that word a lot, a chiasm. Y'all know what a chiasm is, right? It's, it's a literary tool, structure of a passage where the writer is trying to draw your attention to that center part. So whatever the center part is, is what he's highlighting. Go ahead to that next slide. I want to show you that really this whole introduction, the, you know, chapter one, I mean, chapter one, verse one through 18 is, is one large chiasm. So you can see the A and the A match up, B and B match up and C. So as it unfolds, he makes a declaration of A, declaration of B, then C. Then as he gets past that moment of C and he starts going towards the end of it, he starts repeating the things that he did before. And that's to draw our attention to that middle section, which is actually C. So look at this with me. A, the words, activity, and creation. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The word created everything that is. 
Then he mentions in verses six through nine that John was a witness to this light that had invaded the darkness. And then he comes to that part where we were looking at really last week and even before that, where the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. And then as he begins to back out of that, like we read here in verse 15, John's witness concerning the word's preeminence. And then you back out of it a little more and there's that final revelation of Jesus Christ where John actually names Jesus. He's not just talking about the word and him. Now all of a sudden he gives us the name there in verse 17 that this is Jesus Christ, okay? So when you look at the way John structured this, he's drawing our attention to that middle part that we talked about last week. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus is God. Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is God in the flesh. And God cared enough to take on human flesh and come and be with us in the incarnation of Jesus. So you can see that is the way he structured it to emphasize that point. But here's what's amazing is John is, is a very um, intentional, creative writer. And so he actually has chiasms, chiasms within chiasms. So this last passage that we're looking at here is actually a chiasm as well. So go to the next slide. And what we find is these last few verses, look at verse 14, 15, 16, and 17, and 18, and you see the same structure. And the one and only son who is from the father, verse 14, he's full of grace and truth. Then it says, there is this grace in place of grace or grace upon grace. And then again, he mentions in verse 17, grace and truth, just like he did in verse 14. And then he ends with 18, the one and only son who is himself God. Just like in verse 14, there was the one and only son who was from the father. So do you see how he's repeating these themes? Well, again, I'm not doing that to impress you. I'm saying there is a focus that John wants us to have. And for this one right here, what is the focus? Let's see this idea of grace upon grace. So let's look at this verse by verse and see what John is intending for us to take out of this. For, verse 16, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Now notice in verse 14, I emphasize we have seen. Now in verse 16, we have received. So we beheld, now we are receiving, pulling into ourselves. And that word fullness, that unending supply, because God is infinite, just keeps coming after us, keeps coming after us. I don't know if you remember when you were a kid, how many of you grew up in this area, you'd go to the beach on one of those days where the waves were coming in, three foot, four foot waves, you know, decent size for this area. And, and you would just be a little kid out there and those waves would just hit you. And about the time it would hit you, your feet would come off the bottom of the ocean and you would just kind of flounder around until you could get your feet set. And just about you get your feet set, boom, another one would hit you. And you'd find, and it was so much fun to do that until your nostrils were full of, of salt water. And you know, that was a bad thing. And then you start throwing up and stuff. We won't go into that. But it's that picture of that relentless motion of the waves that keeps coming at you. That's the picture that John is creating about the grace of God, that somehow the grace of God is just coming at you. It's relentless. It just keeps hitting you over and over and over again. So that's one big picture of it. And he uses this term grace upon grace. Now that is one way of translating it. And I will tell you, if you dig into it, read the commentaries, especially those who are scholars far greater, far wiser than I am, they say that this actually can be translated several different ways. It actually is most rigidly translated grace instead of grace. 
okay? So grace instead of grace. Now, that's interesting. So it's one blessing instead of another, or one blessing maybe replacing another. So what does John mean by it? What, what does he mean by this? What, how, do you, how do you get grace instead of grace? Well, as the grace you receive becomes appropriated for your life, as that grace is allowed to work in your sanctification, in your maturation process, as you grow spiritually, what happens is more and more grace keeps coming at you. So as you have that initial moment of grace that draws you into becoming a follower of Christ, that's not the end of it. And the other thing I want you to see is it's not just this massive general grace that God just throws on you and you swim in. It's actually a very specific grace according to what's going on in your life. I'm going to show you that in just a minute. So for those without grace, what John is saying is there is a grace that is readily available. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. He says, where sin abounds, what abounds all the more? Grace. So it's, it's, it just keeps coming. And, and no matter how much is needed, there's enough of it. Why? Because God is infinite in his character and he's a gracious God. Therefore, there is enough grace to cover all the sins in this room, all the sins in this world. There is more than enough grace, not only to save your soul from hell, there's enough grace to give you an abundant life while you continue to journey through your process of sanctification. There is grace upon grace, but there's also grace for your suffering. James chapter one, we studied the book of James two books ago, and you remember that where he says, count it all joy, my brothers, of what kind? Various kind. So, and we talked about, you remember when we studied through that, if you were here for that Bible study, when we were going through there, we talked about how there are all kinds of trials that we may find ourselves in. Different trials where we are walking through life and maybe we come through this trial because of a sin that we've committed and we find ourselves in a crisis or a trial. Maybe it's a sin that someone else committed and yet we are feeling the brunt of their decision. And so we're walking through this trial because of that. Maybe it's a trial, not even because of them, not even because of us. Maybe it's just because of the world, the culture in general. And so we find ourselves in a depraved generation, a fallen world. And so we find ourselves in crisis situations just because of the world that we live in. So there are various kinds of trials, but James says rejoice in that because in those trials, there is a purpose in your suffering. God is doing something. He's growing something in you. Well, I want you to also see this passage from 1 Peter. I love this because of the tie-in. 1 Peter chapter 4, the apostle Peter writes this. As each has received a gift use it to serve one another. So in other words, we, when we become followers of Christ, the Holy Spirit gives us gifts and we're all different. We're all gifted differently. So as we get these, we get them not to benefit ourselves or glorify ourselves, but to serve others. And look what it says, as good stewards of God's, what's the word? Varied grace. Think about that for a moment. What Peter is saying there is there's not this generic grace but actually the very specific gifts that God gives to us that we serve one another with are variations of God's grace. 
So what I'm saying is as we serve one another, the gift that God has given me serves a purpose in your life. It's a very specific grace that serves a very specific purpose in you. And the gift that God has given you serves a purpose for me and for others. And that's the way we share in this because God is very specific. So with every various trial that James talks about, Peter tells us there's a various grace for that trial. I love that because it's not God just sitting back going, there's plenty of grace for everybody, but it's God being very intentional and the grace is specific for your trial because he knows exactly what you need when you walk through that crisis. Our suffering has meaning in the gospel. So for those of us who are followers of Christ, this text makes it very clear that from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another, after another, after another. We have it now, and then grace is heaped upon grace as we walk with him. So it is grace for our spiritual growth. It is grace that pulls us into the kingdom of God. It is grace that sustains us through our process of growing in Christ. It is grace that helps us to understand God in a fuller way. It is grace that gives us purpose in our times of struggle and sorrow and, and struggling. And it also gives us purpose in our victories and purpose in our prosperity. There is a grace for whatever it is we are walking through. There's this fullness of grace that is ever showing us the way. We are growing continually in the grace of God. Look how it continues, John does in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, Again, grace is a major theme here. Mention every verse in 14 through 17 with the exception of that verse about John the Baptist in parentheses, but every other verse mentions grace in it in some capacity. So verse 17, I believe, is actually further explaining what he's already talked about in verse 16. So the grace instead of grace is highlighted by these two forms of grace that gives us explanation that John has for us in verse 17. Look at the two graces. The law was given through Moses. That's a grace. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's a second grace. That is grace upon grace, or listen to me, grace instead of grace. It makes sense of all those ways that you can translate that. It is a grace that comes that it's not that the law is bad, and you could very easily read that if you already are anti-law, right? Then you're already reading that going, yes. And it's kind of like John is saying, you know, uh, law was given through Moses and the crowd goes, boo, you know, but grace and truth come through Jesus. Yeah, that's not the picture that he's drawing because remember, he's already told us that Jesus is the word. Well, guess what the word is? It's the law. The law is good. The law is good because it reminds us of God's standard. It tells us of God's righteousness. It tells us about his character. It tells us the things that please him and how we can please him, how we can draw near to him. But it also reminds us of how we never will. We will always fall short. We will never reach that bar. We will never get there. But it was still, would you agree? You have to agree because it's in the Bible. Um, that the law, the giving of law is grace. It's a gracious God who cared enough for you to know what the standard is. 
It was a gracious God who was pursuing us. It was a gracious God who was revealing himself to us so that we could know him more intimately, so we could understand him more fully. And yet, what do we do? We keep running to the darkness because we never could meet that standard. And that's where a grace came instead of that grace. And that is the grace of Jesus Christ. Grace and truth come together in the person of Jesus Christ. See, it would be easy for someone to see what's stated here, to think about it in a negative way. But no, John's highlighting the law in a positive way because it's a reflection of who God is. And what he's saying is just as that law was a picture of God's righteousness and goodness, a better picture is even now here. And that is Jesus Christ. And he goes on and tells us why Jesus is a better picture. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, underline that word side because that's a word that we don't use in our language a whole lot, especially in our culture. It's a word, bosom, okay? Now, we don't use bosom a whole lot. If you do, you're a little stranger than the rest of us, right? But a lot of people don't really know what a bosom is, but let me show you what a bosom is. It's this part of your chest right up here. So when you take a baby and you hold that baby close to you, the baby's head is, is on the bosom. When it says that John at the Lord's Supper was leaning into Jesus, that's where John's head would be. It's, it's this idea of intimacy where the person is drawing near and they wanna hear every single word that comes out of that person. They wanna watch. Have you ever had someone watching what you say so closely that they're mimicking it with their own lips? Have you ever, you know somebody like that? Like you're talking and they're like, they're, they're mouthing exactly what you're saying. They are so tuned in on your mouth and the way it's moving, they begin to do the same thing. That's the picture. So that's what the word that John uses right here. Jesus, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. Who's he talking about here? Well, he tells us it is Jesus. Verse 17, he just told us. Jesus is the only one. Now think about this. In the Old Testament, you see the face of God it's a death sentence. Can't handle it. The glory of God is too overwhelming for humans. We could never look at, we could never put our head there on the Father's chest and look at him face to face. And this is where John wants our minds to be blown. He says, Jesus was there in the beginning, looking at the Father. And then because of the Father's heart and character and because he's full of grace, Jesus turned and he came to us and he came face to face with us. Because we could never be face to face with the Father, Jesus became our intercessor. He became our priest that went between the two of us to restore that relationship. And so as he comes into the world, it's the first time that humanity is able to look face to face with God because now God has come cloaked, not in the animal skins of the tabernacle or the stone of the temple. He's come cloaked in human flesh and blood. And the face of God is now looking at us. He has made him known, making him known. The word there 
in the original language is the same word that is translated exegete, okay? So you ever heard of exegesis? Some of you have been in seminary or you've been in Bible college or you've gone to the University of Mobile and they make you take those two classes, right? Uh, you, you know what I'm talking about there, this exegesis. Now, how many of you actually know what exegesis is? It's a whole nother story, but you've heard the term. What exegesis means, literally, just roughly, it means to make something known. So whenever we as pastors come together with this passage, now, how many of you, I'm not, I'm not asking you to like toot my horn or anything, but what I'm saying is how many of you have ever come here and you've heard a passage taught here, either by me or Kyle or one of our teachers, and you heard that passage, you knew it, you were familiar with it. Maybe you even came in going, I don't know what he's gonna do with this because I've heard this passage. And you walked out of here with your mind blown because you saw that passage from a different perspective than you had ever seen it before. And you were like, I had no idea that that's what that meant. Have you all ever had that experience here or anywhere else? Yeah. That is exegesis. The word means to make known. So in other words, it's taking this passage and as we as pastors or teachers do this exegesis, what we're doing is saying, I want to take this passage, but I don't want to take it at face value. I want to understand the culture around it. I want to understand the historical context. I want to understand why he used these certain words. What was happening? How does this relate to other passages in scripture? That is the process of exegesis. And what we are doing is taking that passage and making it known to its fullest degree. That's the word that John uses here. He has made him known. So as John begins to tell us these stories from Jesus's life, when he tells us about these miracles, when he tells us about the encounter with the Samaritan woman, when he tells us about how he heals the deaf and the blind, when he raises the dead, he says that Jesus is exegeting the father. He's making him known. He's giving you context of how you understand. So that's why this grace has replaced the first grace. Not that the first grace is done and we don't study the law and it's no good anymore. It's because this one gives us an understanding of the first. Remember the people that Jesus is gonna come in contact a lot with. They're called Pharisees and Sadducees. And these are people who are very religious. They knew the law, but they missed the heart of the law. And Jesus is always reinterpreting the law to them, saying, you've missed it. You, you don't understand. The law is about this. It's the heart of the law. This is what God was drawing us to. And as Jesus teaches this and lives this out, he is exegeting the Father. He is making the Father known in ways that we would never know him. But now he loves us because grace upon grace has come to us. And in human form, we are face to face with God and we see him, and all of a sudden it brings context to the law. It brings context to righteousness. It brings context to grace. It brings context to wrath. It brings context to judgment. It brings context to love. I mean, that's the beauty of what we see, is we see if God were walking among us because he did, this is exactly what God is like. This is the character of God. Now, as John unfolds this, I wanna show you something that's so beautiful. If you have been with us for more than, you know, probably, I guess, six months now, maybe a little bit longer than that, you were with us through the study of Malachi. Now, you remember Malachi? That was a rough book. That was a difficult study. I mean, it was heavy. It keeps reminding us of how we miss the glory of God over and over again 
how when given the opportunity, we will turn and run. We will create our own idols. We'll create our own forms of worship because we run from God. We love to run to the darkness. But Malachi said, you know what? There's a day coming when this isn't gonna be that way anymore. Do you remember how Malachi ends? I wanna show you this because it's so beautiful because as Malachi ends, so John begins. Listen to what it says in Malachi chapter four, the last chapter of Malachi, beginning in verse four. Listen to what Malachi says. Remember, this is the end of the Old Testament. This is the last few verses of the entire Old Testament. It comes to a close. The next thing is 400 years of silence, pretty much, intertestamental period, and then the coming of Jesus. So this is the last thing the Old Testament tells us. Remember the, what does it say? Of my servant who? the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers. Do you see that picture? The child, his head right there on the chest of the father. He will turn them back to each other. What is John telling us? In the incarnation of Christ, what Malachi promised is coming to fruition. John the Baptist is the Elijah who has come to proclaim. And Jesus is pointing us, exegeting the Father so that we will understand, so that we will know that this is not a vindictive God who just loves to send people to hell. This is not a God who just wants to pour out wrath. No, this is a God of love who is perfectly balanced in his judgment and his mercy. He's perfectly balanced in his grace and his wrath. And he wants to pour out grace. He wants you to experience mercy. And he has come and he has gone across the great chasm of our sin to reach out to us through the person of Jesus to say, don't you want to see the Father? Do you remember what he looks like? This is it. He will turn the hearts of the children to their fathers and the hearts of the Father to the children. Once again, restoring that relationship was broken. I truly believe that this is exactly what John has in mind here at the end of his gospel. So when he concludes this, this introduction, this prologue with the sentence, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Jesus is the explanation. Jesus is the exegesis of God the Father. So, so the greatness of Christ explains the greatness of God. And the greatness of Christ's love explains the greatness of the love of the Father. And the greatness of Christ's grace that he shows over and over again in these stories explains the greatness of the Father's grace. May we, may we continue to have our whole concept of God raised higher and higher as God pours on us grace upon grace upon grace. You see, as we move through this process of sanctification, every time you come back around, hopefully you've grown a little bit. And as you've grown in your spiritual walk, you have matured spiritually, God looks a little different. 
How many of y'all remember reading the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? C.S. Lewis. There's this moment where you remember Lucy was the little girl in the, in the book, in the narrative, and she is kind of blown away by Aslan and, you know, a little bit like scared of him. And there's this quote in there where Aslan is saying to Lucy, and this is the quote, every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Do you remember that quote? Every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Now, here's the thing. Does God get bigger? No. He's as big as he's going to get. He's infinite. It's our process of walking through this, of experiencing this grace upon grace, of walking through crisis and walking through prosperity and walking through these different elements of life and learning there's a grace specific for each one of those that all of a sudden it draws our eyes through Jesus to the Father and God gets bigger and bigger and bigger the more we grow. In other words, God reveals more and more of himself as we are ready to receive it. And the picture that John creates for that is grace, grace. That's God's answer for our misunderstandings, grace. That's God's answer for our lack of motivation to grow and discipline ourselves spiritually, grace. That is what God uses to draw us in, grace. That's what God uses to grow us, grace. And you know what, when we are glorified, it will be only because of the grace of God. So I think it's very fitting that John, as he ends this prologue, he brings us back to that center point, grace upon grace. Are you ready to see it? Because I got some stories for you. Let's pray together. As you have your head bowed, just kind of tuning out everything around you, and stare at the floor, stare at the ceiling, just kind of tune everything out. I want to ask you just two questions to reflect on. The first one is, have you ever experienced the grace of God? Have you ever experienced the grace of God? I'm not asking if you're religious or joined a church, but have you experienced the grace of God? Think about Isaiah woe is me for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Over and over again, when you come into the presence of God, if you haven't been awed and amazed by him, you don't fully understand that grace. Here's my second question I want you to reflect on. How have you grown in the grace of God? How long has it been since God has seemed bigger to you? We're all in this process, and the scripture calls us not to just understand, but to act on what we understand, to act on what the Spirit is revealing to us. And I want to challenge you, if you have any questions about what we've talked about tonight or this morning, there is a, uh, off to my left, if you're looking at me towards the stage, it's your right, there's a prayer station. There would be some people there who would love to pray with you about anything you might be going through right now. If you have some questions about what we said, they would love to try and answer those questions or point you in that direction. But it's all about responding to God's word. Holy Father, we just ask that you would add a blessing through the power of your spirit to the teaching of your word. 
We know your word never returns void. And as we reflect on the words that John gives to us, through the inspiration of your spirit, it reminds us again of this incredible picture of your character and your grace and the perfect balance you have in all aspects of who you are. Lord, I pray that you would draw our hearts closer to you, back to the Father. And Lord, that you would come closer to us. And Lord, that we would be able to grow in our maturity and our understanding and that that would produce fruit that would further your kingdom and that would please you and that you would receive that honor and the glory that is due to your name for what you have accomplished with your incredible grace upon grace. Lord, we just want to take a deep breath, soak it all in. Lord, as we walk out of this place, pray that we would be different, our understanding would be greater, and our view of you would be bigger. And we ask this in the powerful name, the Son of David, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.